Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The strange thing about that process for me was that I almost wanted to help Craig, which sounds really bizarre. How can I ever say that? The person that tortured my brother to death, but actually... I actually wanted to almost get to know him and help him. I'm Chris Atkins, and I'm a filmmaker who went to prison for tax fraud in 2016. I spent two and a half years in jail, and have since written about it in my book, A Bit of a Stretch. I made good friends inside, and recorded some of their stories for the first season of this podcast. Sadly, a lot of them have now gone back to prison, some of them several times, And so I've written another book, Time After Time, asking why so many ex-prisoners re-offend. It follows a colourful cast of criminals who just can't stay out of prison, and I'm going to dip into some of their stories for the second season of this podcast. This fourth episode is about Nick Dawson, who went on a decades-long journey to meet the man who murdered his twin brother. I will forever be processing this through my life. In the early years, I protected myself by almost locking away that twin side of me. I'd almost forgotten what it's like to be a twin, so I was trying to go back to think about my time as a twin. Well, maybe we should start there. What memories are still strong for you? In the early years, we were just so much as one person. It was an incredibly close bond. We'd go into school and the teachers never had a chance of telling us apart. We almost grew up as almost as one, one child. We were just together all the time and we wouldn't let anyone else into, in, into our world. Even my older brother felt like an outsider. Happy childhood? Very happy, yeah. Bonfires, bike rides, camping. We used to get on our bikes, uh, cycle into the middle of the lakes and camp for four days. You go into your teen years and as a twin, especially as an identical twin, you crave your own identity. Well, in our case, we craved our own identity. We kind of like had a bit of divergence and we moved apart, but still incredibly close. Even though you're living apart, you buy something at the same time, you, you, you buy the same pair of shoes. As Nick and Simon went into their 20s, the brothers remained very close. They shared a passion for Carlisle Football Club and they'd go on holiday together. I've seen a photo of them on a boat in Spain in 1989, looking like they're making the most of their youth. And I think, you know, when he died, he was still a very young, single, happy lad. He was 30. And he still hadn't sort of had that desire to settle down. And he lived for his nights out. And he was absolutely loving his Wednesday and Saturday nights 
There was a really big crowd of them. You all go out, meet up in the same pubs, go to the same nightclubs. When did you know that something had gone wrong? I didn't know anything had gone wrong at all until the Sunday afternoon. My wife and I had gone to Cumbria and we were actually just driving around some of my own places where Yusuf was born and bred. I had a mobile phone in those days, it was still quite rare. And my phone started ringing as I was driving past the hospital where Sam and I were born. And my wife in those days didn't like me answering the phone, especially the mobile phone. She said, oh, just leave it, leave it. But the phone kept ringing and ringing. So I pulled over on the side of the road and I answered it. And it was my dad. And my dad said, Sam has been murdered. You need to come home. I was just the biggest shock in your life, you know. All I did was kick the phone box inside and out. And we got on the motorway to go back down to my parents. And I said, Dad, uh, what happened? Um, can you tell me a bit more? And he, and he said, Sam was uh, beaten up and drowned. He murdered on the Saturday and we went to see him on the Tuesday. It's the classic scene in the mortuary where the curtain goes across and there's Simon just lying. So we had this surreal moment where we just went to, I went to hug my brother. So imagine this is my identical twin. It's like seeing me on a sort of clinical bed. Was it in your mind to find out who had done it? Was that there at all or were you just kind of dealing with the, the, the act and the grief and the loss? No, I, I was immediately wanting to then help the police because I, I'm, I'm the, tw the twin brother. The detective chief inspector at the time said, let's get you in the press. Let's get you out on the TV. Because you look just like each other. Yeah. So that would help. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, I agreed to do a television appeal. What was I, that like? Surreal. It was just a classic scene. You know, we walk into a room, flashing cameras. But I suppose it with the added twist that you're looking at the victim, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Hello there and a warm welcome to the Lunchtime Bulletin from Granada. The twin brother of a man found murdered appeals for help to find his killer. My beautiful brother, don't take it away from me. My, my identical twin brother, pardon me, some evil person has done this, or evil people, and they've destroyed our family. They've said so much. We appeal for anybody out there who might have seen something on that night. Police now have security video footage of Simon leaving Ritzy's nightclub alone at quarter to two on Saturday morning. The police hotline for information about Simon's murder is 0151 We raised the profile of the crime. It was all the classic, you, you walk past a lamppost and uh, there's a picture of Simon. But for there. you that must have been totally astonishing experience because you're, you're surrounded by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was... Oh. I like a living nightmare, but you just can't, is this really happening? And I remember walking into Asda to get some flowers. Just wanted to put some flowers down. And on the front of the newsstand was, was the Liverpool Daily Post, and it was me on the front page. Help me find the person who's killed my, my twin. And I looked at all these people doing their shopping. And I just remember thinking, how on earth can you go on with your life when, when mine has finished? I used to say half of me has died because I'd lost half myself. The media campaign worked. The police soon had a tip-off about two repeat offenders who had been seen walking with Simon shortly after he left the nightclub. And then Colin called me and said, we've arrested them. He said, we've got the people that murdered your brother. I'm convinced of it. What so, was that like? 
Uh, just huge relief. But so many questions start running through your head. Obviously, you want to know who they are. And so you then had to wait for a trial? We then had to wait a year for a murder trial, yeah. It was... My mum especially, losing her son through murder. She's never been able to face up to that fact. That whole guilt thing about not being there for your son when he was begging for his life, when he was being beaten to death. And my mum screws us up in her head that, that she should have been there for Simon, even though she was never going to be there for Simon. In March 1999, two teenagers went on trial for Simon's murder. Carl Harrison, 19, and 16-year-old Craig Roberts had both pleaded not guilty. So the family prepared themselves for a gruelling courtroom ordeal. Two weeks, they were tried together at Liverpool Crown Court. The attack on Simon was initially robbery-motivated. He'd asked them directions um, after he'd come out of this nightclub alone. He then met Craig and Carl, and Craig and Carl were robbing a car at the time. Craig had only just been released that morning from prison. So I've always found that detail quite astonishing. <sighs> it is. He'd come out of young offenders, having been inside for aggravated assault charges or whatever, GBH. He'd met up with his mate Carl, got some drugs... They spent the whole day in the pub and they then went out to steal a car. And it was in the middle of this crime spree that they encountered your brother, by yeah. complete chance, yeah. and Simon just walked up and asked them directions. Yeah. If you'd been sober, you would have kind of like backed off from that situation. And they decided to walk him into um, Bulletin Park, which is a beautiful nature reserve. It's got a fishing pond in the middle of the park and that's where they attacked him. And what was their motive at that point, do you think? Pin number for his cash card. So, so what they would do is they would... Beat him, tell us your pin number, tell us your pin number, tell us your pin number, knock him unconscious, be, keep beating him. They memorised the pin number for his cash card. Then they knocked him unconscious again. He just was thrown in the pond, obviously, and he, he drowned because he was unconscious. And in the trial, you said they went, what I suppose in legal jargon is, they went cutthroat, they blamed each other? They were saying things like, I'd, I'd walked away by the time uh, he got in the pond, or I don't know how he got in the pond because I was gone. But were you feeling great anger towards them in yes, the courtroom? Yes, very much so. I was looking at them. I was trying to get their eye. Two thugs are jailed for life for the murder of computer programmer Simon Dawson. The jury of seven men and five women at Liverpool Crown Court took three hours, 25 minutes to come to the verdict at the end of the eight-day case. It was unanimous on both counts. We both got uh, guilty of murder. I remember just breaking down. You know, we cried at that point. It was just such a relief. Carl got a 14-year tariff and Craig, the 16-year-old, got a 12-year tariff. And just to explain what that is, it's, it, it's indefinite, but they can only apply for release after the tariff after time. Ta after the tariff, yeah, exactly. So you thought it was too short, those tariffs? Absolutely, yeah. The police talked about him being tortured to death and I, and I, and I think he was tortured to death. Because yeah. at, at that point, Craig had been in a repeat offending cycle since age 11. And so they were both career criminals really, at that young Even age. Even at that young age? Yeah, yeah. And, and it was like a huge, great long list of crimes. What uh, sort of stuff? Burglary, assault, car theft. And they'd done time. They'd been and inside. And they'd done a lot of time. And so, you know, you could see the pattern of, of offending getting worse. Because that's interesting then, that they'd obviously been very heavily in contact with the criminal justice system, but it hadn't helped them. If anything, it had made them better offenders. So you finished the trial still with a lot of questions? A lot of questions, yeah. 
that was a seed in my head. I still have a lot of things to, to talk about the death of my brother. I don't really know fully what happened that night. Those first few years were just getting on with your life and trying to rebuild. You know, started family. My marriage survived. It went through some real tough times. I went into a very deep, dark depression. And I had lots of different types of counselling to try and help me process the grief and the loss and also the anger. I used to sort of vision this scene. I mean, most people probably remember this film, Reservoir Dogs, where, where the guy's sitting on the chair and you torture him and you torture him to death almost. That's what I wanted to do to both of them. I wanted to torch them very slowly and kill them very slowly with a knife and just, you know... And you, th you think to yourself, how can I be so angry and violent towards another human being? But then that's what they did to me. The anger would manifest itself in different ways. I'd have a flare up at the kids or I'd have a flare up at my wife. It was there for a long time and it can easily come out of me now. You know, it, it, it can so it's be. It's still coming, it's still yeah. bubbling. So time passes and eventually after 14 years, we were told of the first CATSI parole hearing. And Just explain what, what that is to the uninitiated. Basically lower levels of security. If they're moving slowly towards the release. They're moving slowly towards a release yeah. situation. They have got to come out of prison. Clearly, relating to their tariffs, they'd obviously over-served their time. So we were told of the first parole hearing was, was coming up. This is for Carl. This was quite new at the time. They said, you as a family can go and read out your victim personal statements. So, At the parole hearing? At, at the parole hearing and, and see the prisoner. And when they said this to us, I said, wow, I am going. I want to see that offender. I want to tell them how hurt I am. 14 years on. There was no doubt in your mind? Absolutely no doubts. And my, my mother and my father wanted to go, but my older brother didn't. First ever time in a prison, we, we drove into the car park, really nervous. And um, we were calling one by one to face the parole board plus the offender. So you hadn't clapped eyes on this guy for... This is 14 years since the crime, so they would have been early to mid-30s. So we'd had our victim personal statements, which we prepared. I went in after my mother. My mother had read out her statement. Now, my mother's statement is incredibly raw and painful and difficult to listen to. What do you think when you went in? I came in, I sat down, I was shaking. I, I was really, really nervous, but I was determined to, to be there for, for Simon. And I sat down and looked Carl in the face. He'd been crying, he was very emotional because he just heard my mother's statement. And so I read out my statement and I was in tears and I looked at him and, and it was raw. It was, I was telling him how hurt I was. Do you think it landed on him? I can never be 100% sure because I've never spoken to the guy, but you've only got to see the emotion in his face to see that actually, yes, he, he was quite visibly shaken by those. And I saw someone different at that point. Instead of seeing a monster, I saw a human. I saw a human who was emotional, maybe even a bit ashamed, maybe um, feeling sorry. But you can't have the conversation at that point. Yeah. Because it's just one way. We read out and we leave the room. So in and out, very quick. Yeah, quite quick. How did it feel when you walked out? Oh, we were on a high. We were like so proud that we did it for Simon. It's a very powerful thing for the family. You know, we're still here. We're still here and we're still hurt. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From that first meeting, I did start to think differently um, because I saw not just a monster and a kid that didn't understand what they'd done. I saw a human being, I saw, a, I saw an adult Maybe, uh, maybe that he did feel sorry. Maybe he does feel ashamed. Maybe he, um, he could say something to me. Then I go back to all those unanswered questions at the murder trial. You still know what happened on that night. You were the last person to see Simon alive. You were the last person to hear Simon say something. I want to know specifics. I even wanted to know, you know, what was the last thing Simon said? How did you throw him in the pond? Because some people might want to just forget those details. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's right. Some people would. What, what do you think drove your desire to know those details? Because I'm Simon's twin. And because there was something inside me that was basically saying, I need to know what happened to my brother. Everything? Everything, yeah. In, in as much detail as you can give me. And then that parole hearing sort of planted a seed in your head to have some contact with the perpetrators, more contact with the perpetrators. Yes, absolutely. You kind of come out of the prison thinking, I want more of this. Shortly after that, Craig's came up. The next one was at um, HMP Grandin. So just talk us through that. So this is Craig, this is the younger perpetrator. Yeah. His parole hearing was at Grandin. It was his first parole hearing. It was at Grandin. And then, you know, same process, called in one by one. Mm-hmm. Craig was... Very emotional. He was like crying. And he, but again, this is a grown man now. He's a grown man, yeah. So he's early to mid-30s. And I remember him having a tissue in his hand because he was crying. I could see it wasn't just put on. It's very difficult to fake crying, I guess. Yeah, you, can't, you, know. you know, I think he was so shaken by what, what my mum had said. And I think the whole thing was a big impact to him, a, a huge impact. So it just struck me now, just going back to the, the, the twin aspect, that for them it's like seeing their victim. Yes, exactly. Almost revisiting the person they attacked. Yeah. Or a mirror of the person they attacked is coming to see them. That is a difficult thing to face, you know. A very but so they should. I yeah. mean, yeah, hopefully it hit home more. Yeah. I'm a living, breathing version of Simon with the mannerisms, the, the voice. It definitely shook them to see me coming in there. I felt a connection with Craig. I didn't quite feel the same connection with Carl for whatever reason, but when I looked Craig in, in the eye that time... I just felt as if that's a person I could actually talk to 
And, and you know, coming out of the room in the in the prison, it's just so unfinished. You know, that you have all these. If only I could say talk to him. You know. So the parole process didn't allow any of that. No, there's no interaction whatsoever. It's just one way. So you come out of that with lots of emotional thoughts and. And I saw this from Craig's emotional response. Maybe he's ashamed. Maybe he could say sorry. Maybe, you know. And so I'm getting that. And because he's in Grendon, he's going on all the courses and he's getting this exposure to a sort of justice. Craig was imprisoned in Grendon, a high security prison in Oxfordshire, which houses some of the most dangerous criminals in the country. It's run as a therapeutic community where the inmates are grilled by the other prisoners. The therapy takes years as they dig into each other's backgrounds and root causes of their offending behavior. It's quite a mad place, and we'll hear from someone who served in Grendon in the next episode. One of the programs that Grendon encourages is restorative justice, where offenders can potentially meet the victims of their own crimes to understand the impact of their actions. So Grendon opened the door to the whole concept of restorative justice. Absolutely. It was, the, it was the catalyst, if you like. I think it was Craig who put the initial request in, saying, could I explore the opportunity of maybe restorative justice with the family? We got a request through from the victim liaison contact saying Craig wants to explore whether there might be a possibility of a meeting. I immediately almost said yes. I just jumped into it because it was... It just felt the right thing. Instinctively, it felt the right thing. Obviously, I discussed it with my parents. They were absolutely, no way are we ever going to meet this guy. How did they feel about you wanting to do it? They respected me and they said, you've got to do what you need to do. And if you need to meet up with him, then we're totally fine with that. But please don't get hurt. That's the good thing about restorative justice is that you never undertake it unless both sides are absolutely, utterly ready. Did you think there might be a risk for you? Yes, there was a risk. Without doubt, there's a risk. I mean, we went into a preparation process, which took a year. You know, so it's not something you say, all right, let's go and let's go and meet. We got assigned some facilitators, two, two great experienced facilitators. They would meet with me. They would meet with Craig. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over a whole year. I think, I think there was about five separate meetings to truly understand whether this meeting should happen. So it's protect both sides. First and foremost, protect the victim, but you know, protect the offender as well, because the offenders could get hurt from this meeting as well. And then after about a year, so this is 17 years since the crime, and we've taken a year to prepare for this meeting. A um, lot of thought and planning going into the meeting, even things like how do you want the meeting to be? Who's mm. going to be in the room first? I remember the one thing that I, I said, please do not put me in a position where I shake his hand. But other than that, I just wanted an open conversation about that night. We hold these meetings in the sort of prison chapel area where it's quiet and you have a nice circle of chairs. So there was the two facilitators. There was myself and my wife. There was um, a couple of other officers who were just observing and just be there, just to sort of be present in case we needed them before he was brought in, I was having doubts about going through with it. And I was crying and I said, I'm not sure I can do it. And I said to myself, I'm doing this for my brother really. And I'm doing this to get my answers. And 
I'm going to go through with it. So he walked in with his probation officer. And he's not handcuffed or anything. He's just no, no, just no sat in the room. yeah. And then Craig spoke. You know, his big, broad scout accent, and he started recounting that day. So we had a three to four hour meeting. It was three to four hours. Yeah, three to four hours. Yeah. And you were asking questions. I was asking questions. We went through that night, even asking how you know he'd killed Simon. Some painful things, uh, even now, you know, uh, those last moments and was Simon crying and were you stamping on him? And But he was honest with me. He was honest. And I think he was surprised at what I wanted to know. I brought in all of these photographs and newspaper cuttings to show him. I actually showed him the pictures of the funeral and Simon when he, we, we laid him to rest. He really struggled to pick those up and look look at them. You know, it was difficult for him. And how was your manner and your feelings through this? Were you, I know you said it 20 minutes ago, you wanted to tie them to a chair and yeah. do, 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 do all that. But was that anger manifesting? Were you sort of shouting at him or were you trying to no. keep it measured? Or Very matter of fact, I was very calm. And I remember that after the debrief, Craig did say, he said, I just could not believe how Nick was just very calm very collected and was not angry. I, I didn't feel angry in that moment. The strange thing about that process for me was that I almost wanted to help Craig, which sounds really bizarre. How can I ever say that, the person that tortured my brother to death? But actually, I actually wanted to almost get to know him and help him. I didn't see him necessarily as a brutal murderer at that point. You know, once we started talking in the meeting, it was we were exchanging information about that day and he was very ashamed I could tell he was ashamed do you think his his con- I don't want to say contrition but do you think the emotion was genuine were you getting a feeling that it was honest yes, it was a genuine genuine set of responses from Craig and a genuine emotion um, very sorry of course You know, did he say that he did say sorry he kind of said things like how can I use the word sorry against your family for what I've done you know sorry is not sorry almost seems an inappropriate word the important thing also is I learned a lot about his background. What sort of thing? Just how he'd come to be there that day and broken family, parents split up, stepfather who abused him, in and out of foster care, just a pretty horrible upbringing. And I remember him saying to me, the only thing that my upbringing taught me was violence was the way. Did that change your perspective on the event itself? I mean, absolutely. Yes, it did. It allowed me to understand that Simon had had a chance meeting with a very damaged person. Many offenders have this kind of upbringing and not many role models in their life. Did it change you? Did it have an impact on you? Very much so. A lot of processing coming out of that meeting. I felt very tired. I remember feeling very emotionally drained at the end of the meeting. And actually, my initial thought was, have I betrayed my brother? I had this kind of like bit of a guilt thinking, what would Simon think about me having met him right now, you know? Um, and what, what's the answer to that? Or what, how close can you get? To, to I to think that he would respect it. I think he would want me to do what I needed to do. Um, I remember a lot of my friends initially were shocked that I did it. A lot of my close friends who, who you know, live with, with my journey, some of them were saying, how can you betray your brother? How can you betray him by meeting that, the killer? And I said to them, well, you're not me. You're not his twin. You don't understand what I need to do. 
Afterwards, Craig gave some feedback to the charity that had organised the session. He said, The morning of the meeting I felt very anxious. I slipped into my default mode of denial and tried to pretend it wasn't happening. It finally became real to me when I was walking to the prison chapel where we were going to meet. The thing that stood out about Nick was how reflective and thoughtful he was. I'd have been fuming, but he was calm and quiet. It helped me to be open and to answer his questions with complete honesty. It made me want to make an effort for him and go into the uncomfortable stuff. I'd been carrying around a knot in me and meeting Nick loosened that knot. It gave me a chance to offer something by answering Nick's questions and explaining what had happened. And it allowed me to say that I understood what I'd taken from Simon's family. I'd shattered their lives. I felt lighter afterwards, as if I'd let a little bit of darkness out of me that was guilt and embarrassment. Restorative justice is there as a tool to help both the victim and the offender. Do things like this stop or lower reoffending? I think absolutely. And I think if we take my example, Craig, he was released from prison roughly four years later uh, in 2019. So quite recently? Yeah. And he has not reoffended. Uh, he's moved to a stable life outside. Restorative justice, he says, helped him tremendously. That whole empathy piece around understanding my side um, and, and seeing the impact of what he'd done, that certainly moved him to a place, a mental state, where he was able to live a, a more normal life out on the outside. And if he comes out and doesn't re-offend, then there's not going to be more victims. Well, exactly. Obviously, Craig's now out. So you haven't got in contact with him, but you're sort of seeing his life on Facebook, which I'd never thought was even a thing. You can sort well, of observe from a distance. Yeah. Or- you know, the terms of his licence are that he can never make contact with any members of the family. And How does that make you feel when you see someone living their life, which is what you sort of helped with, with the restorative justice? Are there some mixed feelings? Very. And I suddenly realised when I saw some pictures of him living his life that, hell, I'm angry again, but only in a momentary sense. I looked at him and he was smiling and he was doing the things that you do having served 21 years in prison, but now he's living a straight life and a good life, I hope. And that's good enough for me. It doesn't sound like you've forgiven him. Is that fair? The way I talk about forgiveness is, can I go to Craig, shake his hand and say, I forgive you, Craig? And and the answer would be, no, I can't. So does it sound like the journey is over or is there more? Is there more in your journey? There's definitely more to come. I'll never stop processing what happened to me. Since this meeting with Craig, Nick has now become a leading advocate for restorative justice. He visits prisons up and down the country several times a month to talk to a whole range of offenders about his story and tries to steer them away from reoffending. You know, it's like a cathartic process for me going through and talking about it in, in a prison sense because it helps me. And I do say that to the offenders. Yeah, you can ask me any question. There's no holds barred here. Ask me any question because I actually get a lot of help through this process myself. Mm. And that's why I keep coming back to do it. I usually do a sort of like 25, 30 minute talk. I unpack it, tell them what happened to me, give them a chance to ask questions. And 
those are often the most powerful. It's the, it's the conversation about the story that, that I think helps the offender. So what impact does it have when you've got a room full of criminals? It is a mix. And I think it depends on the age range. So I, sometimes I go into young offenders and it's different response to an adult prison. The younger group... Well, they don't take it that seriously. They, some do and some don't. Funnily enough, there's a guy I interviewed on the last time I did this podcast who talks about victim awareness and he talks about a woman who'd lost her son yeah. in, in, in a gang crime. And he talks about how that planted the seed of his change. And it took him five years to fully change yeah. and get out and live a different life. But yeah. he, when he traces it back, he said it was a victim awareness course. Yeah. Knowing that I can help others is the most important thing for me. Knowing that I can help some others and knowing that maybe we can stop some reoffending. We're making better criminals in many cases when we send people to prison. I've heard offenders, when I go into prison and talk, University of Crime and all that. So it's getting them out of that cycle, isn't it? You know, it's getting offenders out of that cycle of going back into crime. I've interviewed hundreds of people over the years, and my discussion with Nick was one of the most heartbreaking and inspiring interviews I've ever done. I was particularly humbled by the way he'd channeled his grief into something positive and is now working tirelessly to change the lives of the very people who took his brother away from him. A key part of Nick's journey was the incredible work done at HMP Grendon, a unique therapeutic prison which manages to rehabilitate the most dangerous criminals in the system. You can actually hear from one of them in the next episode. And then I went running across the bridge. Everyone just went over and got the knife out of his hand and stamped on him a little bit and stuff like that. And I thought, if I get five yards away, I'm dead if he blows that. There's people screaming, don't hit him, don't hit him, and all that, don't hurt him. And I was like, fuck that. They dragged him off and they put two in him. And you know when they say in films, you've been smoked. I get that now because smoke came out of his chest. That's my friend, Mark Conway, who used to be a brutal armed robber, but was also one of the heroes who tackled a terrorist on London Bridge. You can hear his remarkable story in episode five. This has been A Bit of a Stretch, the podcast. It was written and produced by me, Chris Atkins. It was edited by Aidan Lyons, and the music was by Vincent Watts. You can hear a lot more about these characters in my new book, which investigates why so many prisoners reoffend again and again. It's called Time After Time, and it's available now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.